All right. Time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Wednesday. What do they call that? Hump day? Get over the hump. Uh, weekend will be here before you know it. <laughs> My day started at 4.30 this morning. Had a sales meeting. To rush back to the studio. All right. Well, we're in the middle of holding a contest. Uh, those of you who are listen- who've listened in- to the past and are regular listeners know that uh, uh, I've purchased a uh, a kayak, and uh, the- we have to give the boat a name. And uh, so far, I've got three entries uh, that are that have made the initial cut, and uh, we'll go into the, uh, the the I guess these are in the semifinals. The, what is this like? Uh, Fighting for the Faith's Got Talent. No. <laughs> All right, uh, Ted. Uh, his suggestion, Ted writes, that you should name your boat the Contramundum. The Contramundum. I, I think that comes from Athanasius of Alexandria, who who uh, said Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Great story, by the way. That's that's uh, actually an inspiring story. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria was one of the uh, early church fathers who defended the doctrine of the Trinity against the Arian heresy. Uh, the Arian heresy, if you're not familiar with it, is very similar to what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, um, that uh, that um, Jesus Christ is not God. He's God-like, but he's less than God. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that he's the uh, Michael the Archangel incarnate, and they vehemently deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, at one point... Uh, I think it's late in the third century, early in the fourth century. Um, the Arian heresy, as it's uh, come to be known, was uh, was running rampant through the uh, Christian churches uh, in the Mediterranean. And Athanasius of Alexandria was one of those guys uh, who, even though he was young, you know, he God used him to fight the Arian heresy. And uh, it, it's it, there's a story that uh, Arius and Ar- and uh, Athanasius at one time actually ran into each other, and this is back in the day when theology could get you killed. Um, now here in America, we don't kill people for theology. Well, for the most part, <laughs> I do not advocate violence. It's not a good thing. But back in those days, you could uh, you could find yourself assuming room temperature. If uh, if you got yourself into a theological fight, because many times it'd be like a theological fight to the death, and uh, and Athanasius uh, ran into Arius, and Arius basically said, uh, you know, Athanasius, give it up. the uh, The whole world is against you. Stop defending this Trinity doctrine. And Athanasius basically said, uh, no, it's not uh, the world against Athanasius. It's Athanasius contra mundum, and Athanasius against the world. And so, uh, a good story there, Ted. That's that's a pretty decent. Name for the uh, for Pirate Christian Radio's kayak. Neil writes that uh, we should name it the Heresy Hunter. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of heresy in the Dana Point Harbor that we've got to hunt down. Um, <laughs> now, this was actually clever. Deb writes that uh, that we should call it the Thresher Snark. The Thresher Snark. She thinks she says I'm a little snarky, 
And so uh, so we should name the kayak the Thresher Snark. So those are our three entries so far that have made the initial cut. And if you would like to participate in the Name the Pirate Christian Radio Kayak Contest, um, the, the, winner, the winner is actually going to get a Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt. And, and uh, the design on this thing is really, really cool. And uh, also we'll get a Pirate Christian Radio baseball cap to go along with it. And so uh, those are the three entries so far. And if you would like to participate in the Name the Pirate Christian Radio Kayak, then uh, email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And um, you know, what we'll do is uh, those entries that uh, make the initial cut, uh, we'll, play, we'll list them on the air, and then we'll make a decision sometime next week. Um, by the way, on the Fighting for the Faith website, that's fightingforthefaith.com, I've put up pictures of uh, our our FJ Cruiser. We've got the design back from the uh, the guys who are going to be wrapping my FJ Cruiser, and uh, <laughs> the official Pirate Christian Radio FJ Cruiser is uh, the design is there for you to see at FightingForTheFaith.com. And I what's funny is is that you know I gave the guy our design elements, and uh, the the kid who's doing this, I mean you should see this guy. He's all tatted up. And uh, you know he he looks a lot cooler than I do, <laughs> but uh, you know he, he's kind of into that tattoo culture thing. And I told him I said you know about the only thing I, I care about is is that this is a really in, almost intimidating design. I you know I want church ladies when they see the uh, pirate Christian radio FJ Cruiser to be intimidated. And so he came up with a really really cool design. And the 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 my favorite element of the thing is is that we've got a. Uh, a, a skeleton on his knees praying in the uh, in the design, and it's just really really cool. There's good symbolic stuff there. So if you would like to see the Pirate Christian Radio FJ Cruiser, which is basically my car, and we're having it wrapped, um, it, I know it sounds so cool. Wow, Pirate Christian Radio has its own FJ Cruiser. No, it's it's a two year old FJ Cruiser. It belongs to Chris. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but. Uh, <clears throat> I think the, the the cool factor has been achieved, and I want to share that with you all. I um, want to let you know that uh, in, in the near future, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a a radio segment on the book The Shack. And I've held off reviewing it till now because I wanted to read it first. I don't think it's a good idea to review a book if you haven't actually read it. That would uh, – yeah, that's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, and they don't have a Cliff Notes version of the Shack, so I've actually had to be, you know, to be reading it. And um, I'll say this: there's some very dangerous concepts in it. But what I wanted to do when I read the book was try to understand uh, the ethos of the book, really kind of understand where where the uh, the author was coming from. And I got to tell you, there's, I don't think you can understand the Shack if um, if you're just trying to only look at it from a theological point of view. There's a secondary, there's this, another part to the story that, um, that I don't think people understand. And and um, if you're going to really do a good treatment of the shack, then you definitely want to, um, you know, get the back story behind it. And um, what's interesting is, is that the book itself, um, the author, he, um, the, the William P. Young is his name, um, he kind of had a crisis within his life and the reason he had this crisis is because he was raised in a in a performance based type of christianity very legalistic high on the moral uh requirements 
but uh, what was missing was grace, and as a result of it, he uh, he, <laughs> he oh my goodness, there's my brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, he said he came by to say hi. Anyway, um, I'll have to talk with him later. My brother-in-law Doug just uh, popped his head and said hey in the studio. So, um, but uh, the the author of the shack. He had this crisis of conscience because he was leading a double life. Um, on the one hand, you know, he, he's he's a Christian and knows what God uh, requires of him morally. But at, on the other hand, he, I, you know, he's publicly admitted that he was having an affair, and uh, so morally, you know, he was he was really struggling and having problems. And um, I don't think there's there's a therapeutic piece to the shack that. Unless you've been in a uh, legalistic form of Christianity, it may not make a lot of sense to you. But those of you who've been in a performance-based uh, version of Christianity and feel like you're not living up to it, there's a piece to this that really appeals to you because you've gone through that thing where you realize, I- I'm not living it. I'm not living up to God's standard. I feel like I'm living a double life. And as a result of it, um, you know, there's that's kind of a, a part of the backstory here. In fact, when I went to my 20-year uh, high school reunion, I went to a Christian school named Maranatha High School in Sierra Madre, California, and um, and the church that was predominantly represented uh, at Maranatha High School was Pasadena Nazarene. And if you all know the Nazarene Church, the Nazarene Church was really kind of a, um. Not a reformation, but more like a revival of old Methodism, you know, trying to get back to that holiness concept. And so um, my high school experience in Christian high school was very, very legalistic. You couldn't dance. You couldn't chew. You couldn't go out with girls that do, um, you know, and, and, and chapel on a, on a weekly basis was a really steady diet of things that you can't do as a Christian. And if you're really a truly a Christian, a sold out Christian or the Nazarenes would talk about the second blessing Christian, um, then, you know, if you've experienced the second blessing of holiness, um, then there's certain things that you just don't do. And so it's morals, 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 morals. And the problem with that um, is that it's it's not really a lawful use of the law. Instead, it's really like a dry, withering breeze, a, a wind. It's, it's a scorching desert wind that'll eventually suck the life out of you because the law can't save you and you can't keep the law. You can't keep it perfectly. It demands perfect righteousness from you and you just can't give it no matter how hard you, hard you try. And so um, what I've seen over and again with people who are involved in that type of Christianity is that uh, they've got this uh, they they a few things happen one one of the things that happens is you got people who fool themselves into thinking they're pulling it off and these are the people who are paraded in front of the rest of the church and to, and these are the overcomers and if you can just follow the steps that they do then uh then you'll then you'll experience what they're experiencing you know that the, the they've achieved some this this state of holiness um then there's an entire group of people who are, are kind of like Jack Mormons. You know, they show up to church, but they know they're not really pulling it off. Um, and um, and these people generally have one foot out the door because they know that morally they're not quite pulling it off. But at the same time, you know, they, they feel compelled to go to church because they think that's the right thing to do. So they sit through these types of sermons and, um, in, in a sense, kind of suffer through them. 
And then you got the people who are absolutely terrified and, and, and borderline suicidal. But when I went to my high school reunion, which was uh, my 20-year high school reunion, what was funny is, is that there was a group of people who were there who um, the, the question was uh, that was being asked, and it was asked in this tone, are you still a Christian? Uh, are, do you still go to church? Uh, what about you? Are, are you still a Christian? Yeah, because we, you know, and what I found is, is that, you know, I wasn't the one asking the question, but it was asked of me several times by several people. And, you know, I was proud to say, yeah, I said, absolutely, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a legalistic Nazarene. I, I've rejected n- the Nazarene faith, so to speak, because I believe it's law based and it's not based in the gospel of Christ. But um, for so many of the people that I talked to, the ones who were still Christians, many of them have had switched over to liberal denominations. You know, and the reason why they did it is because they couldn't continue on the rat wheel of good works and and never hearing the gospel. And what's really missing in a lot of American evangelicalism is the gospel for Christians. And can you know, we all have this idea that we understand that you know when when that sinner comes to church, the guy who is uh, unchurched, that's the term nowadays. The the person who's an unbeliever comes to church and they hear the gospel and they come down the aisle and they receive Christ. Um that none of us has a problem believing that that guy's sins are forgiven. But what happens is, is that when you go to a church where you get a steady dose of nothing but the law and application and how to, quote, obey it, then what happens is for many people, they have a crisis of conscience. And the one the thing they wonder is, is that can Christ actually forgive me as a Christian for the sins that I've committed? And so... Um, the the crisis of conscience comes down to you want to put on this this moral Christian face that says I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and, and I'm a Christian and I'm moral, but then at the at the other on the other end of it, when you really examine your life in light of this in light of the law, what you find is is that you are not living it, and so the question is how do you resolve that conflict? If you resolve that conflict by making yourself feel like you've pulled it off, you end up becoming a Pharisee. And um, and the example that everyone should follow. But uh, if there is no gospel, then it's really easy to despair and then walk away from Christianity. This is the reason why I think it's absolutely critical or one of the reasons why I think it's absolutely critical that we we take the advice of Paul or take the example of Paul preaching to the Corinthian church. He said, I chose to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that he was speaking to believers. He wasn't speaking to unbelievers. We Christians, you and me alike, we need the gospel. We need to know that that sin that we've committed, the one, that secret sin that you te- you're not telling anybody about, not even your therapist, that secret sin that you've got locked away deep in, in the darkness part of your heart, the one that you're afraid that if anyone found out about that they would absolutely question whether or not you were a Christian because you question whether or not you're a Christian because you're the one committing that sin. That that sin is forgiven in Christ. That he died for that and you're not going to face God's wrath and judgment. But that Christ died even for that sin. Even for those sins. See, we need to hear that. Otherwise, we run the risk of despairing and somehow thinking that it's up to us to keep the law. And we, for, we lose sight of the fact that Christ has died for us. Now, all of this I'm saying in, in the context of speaking about the book, The Shack. 
And um, I think it's really important that um, in in reading the book The Shack, I don't really recommend it for people, but those who've read it, this, if you if you're going to critique it properly, you have to understand that part of the backstory of this and the and the problem that the that the author is dealing with is this this conflict within his own life. On the one hand, he's a Christian, and on the other hand, he's got deep, dark, horrible sins that he's committed in his lifetime. And so where I think the shack really goes wrong is that it doesn't really point us to Christ and the true gospel. The true gospel of Christ forgiven, you know, forgives our sins because he died for our sins on the cross. Instead, he kind of sneaks in a, um, an alternative gospel that tastes sweet. It really does. It's an alternative gospel that on its surface sounds gospel-ish, but kind of misses the point. And it's almost a sneaky little universalism that he's thrown in there where pretty much everybody's okay because Christ died for everybody. And um, there's several places in the book where that where that sneaks in. And then <clears throat> as part of my research on the book also, I found a, a couple of places where the, uh, William, uh, where the author did some interviews and I have a sermon that he preached. He actually preached a sermon at one of the local churches here in Southern California not too long ago at Mariner's Church. And it was interesting to listen to that sermon because he correctly gets the problem out to a point where, you know, that he would coax somebody who's struggling with this paradox in their life between the, the sins that they commit and, the, and, the, and God's demands of holiness and perfection. He, he, he does a good job of teasing that out. The problem is, is that after teasing it out, he doesn't give us Christ and him crucified. He actually gives us something different. And it's sweet tasting and it's comforting, but it's not the gospel. And so, um, you know, I'm, I kind of want to tease that out a little bit here. In fact, you know, this is really funny. Time for me to go to, uh, <clears throat> to my own website because... Um, I think maybe being a little bit transparent here would help some people. Um, as I've mentioned before, I actually worked at Focus on the Family. And um, and I've done the legalistic thing. I've done it. And, um, and done it horribly. And so I think it's it, maybe at this point it would help to for, to give a little bit of backstory, you know, as far as my life is concerned. Because this is one of the issues that I absolutely... Um, understand and and can empathize with people regarding you know these types of contradictions. I've seen far too many people walk away from Christianity because they've been burned, and and realize that they cannot stand up to the withering heat of the law. And so, um, I actually wrote a piece, a couple of pieces, and it's posted at extremetheology.com. And uh, this isn't exactly what I plan to do today, but um, this is one of the shows that I had you know, was working on in the future. But I think it's good to bring it up right now. Um, the the name of the pieces are Grace versus Law: How to Make Sense of the Contradiction. And I'll put links up to these articles up at uh, at uh, FightingForTheFaith.com if you actually want to read them and, and uh, print them out. And uh, so bear with me as I as I kind of bear my soul a little bit here and uh, help you all at least understand. Um, what it is that I went through, the crisis that occurred in my own life regarding the fact that I am really a wretched and terrible sinner. Here's what it says. Uh, My early years in Christianity were spent in the Nazarene church in private Christian schools, and they were insanely legalistic. 
In fact, they turned me into a Pharisee. During those years, I feared God. I earnestly did everything that I could to be a good Christian, to make myself worthy. To not backslide, I only listened to Christian music. I had my devotions every day. You could say that I was on fire for the Lord. You bet I was, because I was told that if I wasn't, then I would burn in hell. There was no grace, no forgiveness, only an endless rat wheel of good works with no assurance that I was even meeting the lowest standard necessary for me to be saved. I even went to work for Focus on the Family and did everything I could to stand out as a Christian among Christians. At that time, if you had asked me if I was going to heaven when I died, my answer would have been, well, I hope so. I hope so. Understand this. Just let me... That was that's for real. If you had asked me at that time if I was going to go to heaven, my only answer is I hope so. And I am a product of Christian schools. I worked at Focus on the Family. And the best I could come up with is I hope so. Beneath the good Christian facade was a young man who struggled with his sin and who honestly knew that he wasn't winning the battle. I knew that I was not good enough to be saved. I hope that working at Focus on the Family would provide me the answers that I was looking for in my struggle against sin. I was surrounded by other believers. We had chapel every day. I got to hear the radio program every day. I was literally fed a steady stream of tactics and practical methods for living a, quote, God-pleasing life, both personally, as a husband, and as a father. But there was no peace for me. There was no assurance. There was no hope. My sin problem would not go away. And I knew that I would face shame and rejection if I had to stand before Jesus and give an accounting of my life. Apparently, I wasn't the only one with these fears and doubts. One day I went to work, this is at Focus on the Family, and I heard that one of the ladies in our department had committed suicide by turning her car on with her garage door closed. What little details they gave us from the note that she left behind sounded like I could have written it. The thing that really irked me while I worked there was the constant stream of radio guests and experts that appeared on the Focus on the Family radio program that talked and acted like they had their sin, the sin in their lives under control. They wrote books on the topic and always made it sound like it was a battle that we could easily win if we would just apply ourselves to it. I'll never forget Jay Carty's appearance on the radio program. Jay is a retired NBA basketball player turned Christian author who also who wrote a book called Counterattack, Taking Back Ground, Lost to Sin. The back cover of the book said, quote, One thing is certain. It, the book, clearly shows how you can be delivered from the bondage of sin. Yeah, let go and let God. Yeah, that's right. The book clearly shows that you can be delivered from the bondage of sin. That was on the back cover of Jay Carty's book, Counterattack. Now, during his interview with Dr. Dobson, I hung on every word that Carty spoke. 
And as soon as the interview ended, I went to the Focus on the Family bookstore and bought a copy of Cardi's book. I read it cover to cover as quickly as I could and immediately began to apply Cardi's, quote, tactics for fighting the devil and temptation. Now, looking back on it now, I feel foolish for ever buying that book. Now, below, I'm going to read this. Here is an excerpt from Cardi's book. And you're going to see why, after I read this excerpt to you, why I felt foolish. Jay Cardi's tactic for defeating temptation and delivering yourself... Delivering Yourself from the Bondage of Sin, an actual excerpt taken from the book Counterattack. Here we go. Here is the principle we're going to work with. When your imagination comes into conflict with your will, it's your imagination that usually prevails. The means this That means you will most often do a variation of whatever you think about the most. Therefore, it's necessary to discipline our thoughts and to take them captive to obedience to Christ. So here comes a flock of wild thoughts. Temptation has now hit. Now what are you going to do? If you don't have a mechanism to take the thought captive, your imagination is going to run wild and you're going to sin. That's why you need to learn how to have a polar bear alert. That's right, you heard that right. Jay Cardi's solution for overcoming sin is to learn how to have a polar bear alert. Let me continue. Here's how. Go into the corner and don't think of a white polar bear. What did you think of? A polar bear? That's right. Not just because you're rebellious. You are. But not just because of that. It's because you didn't have anything else to think about. If all you had to think about is a white polar bear, what are you going What are you going to think of? You're going to think of a white polar bear. This time, let's try it this way. Make the white polar bear cause you to think of a pink elephant. Elephant. The white polar bear is going to be the catalyst that's generating the image of a pink elephant in your mind. Are you ready? Go into the corner and don't think of a white polar bear. What did you think of? Did you think of a pink elephant? No, wrong. First you thought of a white polar bear, and then you thought of a pink elephant. The difference between the second time and the first time is subtle, but it is very important. The white polar bear didn't stay in your head as long as when you had the pink elephant to think about. If you can sensitize yourself to temptation so that you're aware when it comes, the tempting thought will have stayed in your mind a far shorter period of time because you put something else in its place. Since you can't think of two things at the same time, if you practice substitute thinking, you're not going to sin. Temptation will have been removed before sin occurs. You will have used temptation as a catalyst to make you think of godly things. That's pretty simple, but you'll need some practice to get good at it, especially if it's not something that you've done much. I don't know if you've ever seen the old John Wayne movie, Operation Pacific, or any other World War II submarine movie. The sub is on the surface, and an enemy plane comes overhead, and you hear, Aouga! Aouga! come from the klaxon horn, and someone screaming, Dive! 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 Then the guys scramble down the ladder from the conning tower into the sub and close the hatch just as the water starts coming in. It's an intense moment, and it gets your attention. We want temptation to get our attention. So whenever you have a polar bear alert, it will be necessary for you to have a horn blast in your head. And whenever that occurs, make yourself think of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You'll need to memorize it. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is too, too far out for me, you may be saying. Stop and think for a moment. The idea can work for you. 
you can use temptation to remind yourself to start reconstructing the verse, and by the time you put 2 Corinthians 10.5 together in your mind, whatever it was that was tempting you will be far gone. It just won't be a problem anymore. You will have done some, some substitute thinking, and you won't have sinned. My favorite spot is Hume Lake Christian Camp in California. One day after teaching the polar bear alert concept, I was coming out of chapel following a couple of high school guys. They didn't know that I was behind them. And as we got to the street, uh, a girl wearing shorts shorter than appropriate, a little cheek was slightly exposed, walked in front of us. And as they checked her out without looking at each other in unison, they shouted, polar bear alert and hung a left toward the camp store. You see, the concept works. Use it against improper fantasy. Use it to displace emotion in order to keep anger from ruling your life. Use it when you are shopping to stop from lusting after things. It's a good device to use when walking by the refrigerator if you're overweight. Try it. It works. As strange as it may seem, this is one of the most practical devices that you can keep from sinning. That makes learning this technique worth the time. Don't you agree? That my friends, is an example of the steady diet of preaching and teaching that I received when I was an evangelical. Concepts, practical strategies, things that you can do to stop from sinning. Let me continue. Yep, that's right. The answer to all of our sin problems, according to Jay Cardi, is a polar bear alert. Now, I'm embarrassed, embarrassed to admit this, but I earnestly employed the polar bear alerts in my life in an effort to conquer my sin. Predictably, it accomplished absolutely nothing. How could it do otherwise? Cardi believes that we can conquer our sin by using substitute thinking tactics. But sin is not a thinking problem. Sin is a problem of, a heart, of the heart. It is a sickness that exists within our very nature. I didn't need substitute thinking. I needed a substitute for my sins. I felt like a sucker for being duped into buying such a useless book. Cardi had my money and I still had my sin problem. As a result of this disappointment, I began to question the validity of Christianity. I couldn't resolve the conflict that was raging within me. On the one hand, I had earnestly tried to live a God-pleasing life. With all of my heart, I struggled to live a life that would cause Jesus to say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But on the other hand, I wasn't a good and faithful servant. I was a rotten sinner. No matter how hard I tried, no matter what tactics I employed, I couldn't defeat my sin. I feared that hell was what awaited me when I died, because Scripture makes it clear that is what I deserved and what I had earned as a result of my sinful deeds. It wasn't until I began my degree in Religious Studies and Biblical Languages at Christ College in Irvine, California, that my eyes were opened to the fact that what I was being taught by my church and by focus on the family was a complete confusion and distortion of God's law and the gospel. This was an eye-opening experience that changed my life forever. And we'll try to talk about that on the other side of the break. So, um, yeah, not exactly what I planned for today. <laughs> I was going to work on, I was hoping to do this in a future show, but it just seemed right because when I, when I read the shack, when I read, uh, Young's book, the shack, 
I see echoes of my own life in it because I have struggled with this very thing. But the solution is not some vague, some weird theology or the stuff that he's recommending. The, the, the solution is Jesus Christ. So we'll have to get back to that uh, once we... Uh, once we get back from the break. So uh, we're going into our break here. If you would like to email me, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we'll be right back. Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn Radio Program including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And, of course, be sure not to miss our selection of T-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. In the middle of burying my soul with you guys. Can you imagine? I, I, I'm, many of you have already identified the fact that I'm a sinner. <laughs> I get emails to that effect on a regular basis. Shazam! <laughs> anyway, I'm in the, we're in the middle of doing some groundwork before I actually do a full-blown review of The Shack. And the one thing that really struck me as I'm as I'm reading this book is uh, is I really understand this man's struggle. I really get it because you know it, when you when you listen to his interviews, you see and hear uh, this pain that he has because of the double life that he was leading. On the one hand, he's a Christian, and on the other hand, he is a dirty, rotten sinner, and he knows it. And so the question is, how do you break that paradox? What's the solution to your sin problem? Is it trying harder? Is it doing better? Is it polar bear alerts? Or is it Christ? The good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Even you Christians, even you Christians hearing me today or listening via podcast, Christ died for your sins. Repent and believe the good news. That is the good news. He's not going to shame us. He's not going to come in judgment. Believe in him, and you will not perish. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. 
Anyway, let me continue with this uh, this article that I wrote since I've you know I'm bunny trailing myself anyway, which means I got tomorrow show already written. <laughs> um, so uh, when we last left off, I had just explained polar bear alerts. So let's let's continue on. Um, do a little bit more backstory so you guys get a little bit more of an idea of this. In the seventh grade, I began my Christian walk. Um, from the age thirteen until twenty one. Uh, the primary focus of every sermon that I heard was God's law and practical applications and steps for defeating sin. <clears throat> now, understand, 13, um, you know, I, I am attending a uh, free Methodist church that was a small Christian school attached. Uh, high school years, I'm, a, I'm attending Maranatha High School. It was in Sierra Madre at the time. It's now in Pasadena. And... Um, and was getting just steady, steady, steady diet of nothing but the law. Um, so, you know, and this really was the focus of everything from 13 until I was 21 years old. Um, the highlights and notes in my Bible actually bore this fact out. I have an old Bible from when I was, you know, during this time of my life. And literally all of the law passages are highlighted, not one of the gospel passages. I didn't know how to hear the gospel. All I knew how to hear was the law. When I would do my daily devotions, I would dwell on passages that told me what my behavior should be. Those passages made sense. Those were the ones that were drilled into my head day after day and week after week. The passages that I didn't understand, the ones that I couldn't connect with, were the passages that tell of God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness offered to us on account of Jesus Christ. The reason I couldn't understand these passages has a lot to do with how my pastor would apply them in his sermons. My pastor would only mention grace passages when he was pe- preaching a evangelistic sermon. Grace and mercy were only ever offered to non-believers. If you were a dirty, rotten sinner and the Holy Spirit happened to have led you to the church on a Sunday uh, morning that my pastor was preaching an evangelistic sermon, this only occurred a couple of times a year, though, then you would hear him offer you Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' shed blood and God's grace and God's love and Christ's mercy. All you had to do was come down the aisle and kneel at the altar and give yourself to, to God, then you would receive this precious gift. But once you were in the club and had made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior, it was time for you to get to work and time to move on to more practical teaching. From that time on, you were taught that grace and mercy were baby stuff and milk, doctrinal milk. And if you wanted to grow into a strong Christian, then you needed meat, and meat could only be found in the law. The verse that stood above all the others at my Nazarene church was, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's Matthew 5, verse 48. And the Nazarenes actually teach that you can achieve this. And that's the focus of preaching, is to help you to be perfect. Because of this, I never really paid much attention to Bible passages that taught about grace and mercy. My pastor, my youth minister, my small group leader, my Bible teachers all made it clear that grace and mercy didn't apply to me anymore because I was already a Christian. Now, they didn't say it like that. They didn't say, yeah, now you're a Christian and grace doesn't apply to you. They didn't. It was not it was not spoken with words. It was said by actions because grace and mercy was always offered to the guy who was the unbeliever. It was never offered to the people who were in the Christian church and always amazes me 
that you know when when I listen to a lot of sermons by guys who have these seeker sensitive churches, they claim that they're doing evangelism. Some of them, I actually hear them preach the gospel. Um, one particular person who I've taken, a uh, pastor that I've taken issue with, is Pastor Stephen Furtick. Now, the funny thing is, is that that guy actually knows the gospel. I've heard him preach the gospel clearly. So, same with Perry Noble. It's actually possible to hear the gospel in these things. The problem is, is that if you're already a Christian, he's not preaching it to you. It's always preceded by, now, if you're here for the first time, or if you haven't given your, your life to Jesus, then the gospel is this. The qualifier is is that if you've never if you've never received Jesus or made a commitment or whatever, so they're telling the good news to everybody who isn't already a Christian. But if you're already a Christian, many times there's confusion. Well, what about me? Does the gospel actually apply to me? Do you not know the sins I've committed in my life just this week, Pastor? Can Christ forgive me of that? <clears throat> Anyway, let's continue here. Um, so, all right. Now, I remember having lunch with one of my youth pastors and sharing with him. Yeah, we, we, this is really funny. Um, the, the, I remember this really clearly. The, the restaurant we went to is called Sambo's. And Sambo's, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. It's politically incorrect. I think it became like Baker Square or something like that. You know, I, I think that's what's there right now. Um, He says, I remember having lunch with one of my youth pastors and sharing with him my fear and my frustration about my sin and my inability to rein it in and to be perfect. I'll never forget the answer that he gave me. You know, I I sat there literally with this with this guy and I just basically confessed, you know, the things that I was really struggling with, all the sin in my life. And you know what he said? He says, Chris, you don't need to worry and fret about this so much. Just love God. That was his advice. Just love God. <sighs> I felt so empty after leaving the restaurant that day. Just love God? What kind of advice was that? My problem was that I didn't love God. At least that's what I believed. If I loved God, I wouldn't keep struggling with my sin. I went home, threw my Bible against the wall the wall of my room, but I later came to my senses and decided to once again pull myself up by my bootstraps and give it another good college try. Now, looking back on it, I realized that the teaching and preaching of my church literally cut me off from all hope of salvation. Let me read that sentence again. The teaching and preaching of my church literally cut me off from all hope of salvation. I diligently searched God's law for little shreds of hope and tiny crumbs of sunlight that could tell me that I would be okay. But there is no comfort in God's law. There is no forgiveness offered to me in God's law. God thunders from Mount Sinai. Thou shalt not. But those very things that God said thou shalt not were the very things I was doing. God tells us, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and then you will live. But there isn't even a day that goes by where I don't break God's law. Jesus said, be perfect. But I am not perfect. I am so far from perfect that I commit sins on a daily basis that earn me the fires of hell. In fact, I'll be blunt with you guys. I've committed sins today since waking up 
that have earned me the fires of hell. Some of my high school friends, and this is the part I already kind of talked about, have walked away from Christianity. Who could blame them? Others have become theological liberals as if their solution for silencing the thunder of Sinai is to pretend that Sinai is a myth. Act like it never happened. Pretend that it's just a story that is supposed to motivate us to be better people and make us make a positive difference in the world. Both of these responses make perfect sense to me. A person can only live in despair for so long. That is exactly what that type of preaching did. It created utter despair in me. I was literally withering under the heat of God's law. But what I didn't know is exactly what God's law, that is exactly what God's law is supposed to do. God's law is actually supposed to make you wither under its heat. What was missing in my life was absolution. What was missing was the gospel. We continue. A year after I applied at Christ College, I had an interest in cult apologetics and became an avid listener of Dr. Walter Martin's Bible Answer Man program. It was Walter Martin who first turned me on to the idea of studying at Christ College. I heard him recommending uh, the school on his show for those who were interested in studying apologetics. One of the professors that that taught with Dr. Walter Martin at Simon Greenleaf was a professor at Christ College. His name was Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Now, those of you who listen to White Horse Inn, uh, those of you who listen to issues, et cetera, are familiar with who Dr. Rosenblatt is. Um, I'd never heard of the man, but if he had Dr. Martin's trust, then I knew that I would be get a good, solid education in apologetics. Little did I know that I was about to have everything that I had been taught and believed challenged by this powerful little man. And those of you who know Dr. Rosenblatt know what I'm talking about. Um, during this time, also during this time, things at the Nazarene Church had actually gone from bad to worse. The church had recently installed a new pastor. His sermons were more feel-good than our previous pastor, but under his watch, a crazy teaching and practice had taken hold in the church. During this time, a man with ties to Fuller Theological Seminary gathered a small following of people within the church who believed that the reason why many Christians were not able to rein in their sin and become perfect was because they were being possessed and oppressed by demons. (laughs) I kid you not. Boy, those are crazy days. Those of you, any of you been around Christianity long enough to have experienced deliverance and inner healing ministries? Uh, that's what this guy was into. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, this man's solution was deliverance and inner healing ministry. He literally advocated having Christians undergo exorcism and have demons cast out of them. This practice was quite a spectacle. He'd shout in a commanding voice for this demon or that demon to name itself and leave while his patient would be rolling and writhing on the floor and foaming at the mouth. This is quite a spectacle. If you've never seen this, uh, consider yourself fortunate. The most disturbing thing, however, was the fact that this man had several members of the church's staff among his followers. Ironically, in my own quest to conquer my sin, I had already gone down this path, and I knew from personal experience that deliverance and inner healing were just as ineffective and unbiblical as polar bear alerts. At that time, my wife and I felt strongly that we needed to voice our concerns with our pastor. The goal was to show him from the scripture that this practice is not biblically sound so that he would step in and put an end to this practice in the church. That's really what we did. By the way, um, I'll name the name of the pastor. His name is H.B. London. That was our pastor at the time. This H.B. London, the cousin of James Dobson, was the pastor. 
There was deliverance and inner healing ministries going on at Pasadena Nazarene. Absolutely unbiblical stuff. We went to him with the passages of Scripture and said, this is not biblical for Christians to be casting demons out of other Christians. And um, um, let's just read. My wife uh, set an appointment to meet with uh, Pastor London, and the meeting went very poorly. My wife and I could barely get a word in edgewise, and when I tried to show him from the Scripture that Christians cannot be possessed by demons because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, he shut me down quicker than you can say, be ye perfect. After that meeting, my wife and I began to have serious doubts that we'd be able to keep attending Pasadena Nazarene. We could not find any way to reconcile this contradiction. How could we continue to worship at a church with a pastor who allowed such blatantly unbiblical practices to continue? Even worse, he wouldn't even listen to the scriptures or the concerns of his own church members. This contradiction was about to become even more aggravated by what I was learning at Christ College. My first year at Christ College, it was brutal. I worked at Focus on the Family part-time. This was when their offices were still in Pomona. I commuted three days a week to school. My son was a little over a year old, and my wife was pregnant with our second child. Juggling family, work, religion classes, first-year Greek. By the way, if you haven't taken Greek, first-year Greek is brutal. It's hard. First-year Greek, church, and bills. That whole thing was a nightmare. To make things even more complicated, I had an extremely difficult time making sense of my new Lutheran professors and my classmates. I had never been around Lutherans. These people were unlike any Christians that I had ever met, especially Dr. Rosenblatt. Those who've met Dr. Rosenblatt or taken one of his classes knows that this man doesn't have a pietistic bone in his body. Rosenblatt was earthy. He was no fan of Christian fads and American evangelical culture and was constantly challenging the beliefs that I had been taught as a Nazarene. After my first week at Christ College, I was convinced that Dr. Rosenblatt was a heretic and that he was going to burn in hell. How could he not? Rosenblatt was the walking and breathing antithesis of the victorious Christian life. Ironically, the thing that offended me the most about him was also the exact same thing that drew me to him. Rosenblatt was real. He was authentic. He had no pretensions of being righteous or holy. And he wasn't there to sell me yet another program or book for moral self-improvement. Instead, he was the only one I had ever met who was offering me real hope and real peace. Rosenblatt worked on me like a skilled heart surgeon. He actually comforted me with Jesus Christ's shed blood on the cross. He told me over and over again that Jesus' blood was shed for me, for my sins. All of them, even the ones that I committed today, I had never heard a Christian talk this way before. It was like being given a cold drink of water after wandering for days in a scorching desert. Rosenblatt never once told me that I needed to try harder, be perfect, or that I needed to just love God. I'm convinced that he knew how terrified I was by God's law, and rather than giving me more of it, 
he began applying the healing balm of the gospel. The one thing I will always appreciate is that whenever he talked about sin, he would always talk about his own sin and never mine. He openly confessed his overwhelming need for a Savior and his utter dependence on Christ's shed blood on the cross for his sins. Compared to the endless parade of sin-conquering experts who appeared on the Focus on the Family radio program, Rosenblatt was a breath of fresh air. Through his lectures and class readings, I was introduced to a different teaching in the Scriptures. This was a teaching that spoke of the forgiveness of sins and of the gift of salvation and of a righteousness from God. These biblical texts contradicted practically everything that I had ever been taught in my church and in Christian radio. I wasn't sure how to make sense of this glaring contradiction. How could I reconcile the passages that had been drilled into my head all my life with these new passages that Rosenblatt was giving me? On the one hand were verses I was familiar with, uh, Matthew 5.48, which says, "...be ye perfect," or John 14.15, "...if you love me, you will keep my commandments." On the other hand, there were these unfamiliar verses telling me things like, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Quite frankly, what Rosenblatt was telling me sounded way too good to be true. I remember thinking to myself, it can't be that easy. Salvation couldn't be that free, could it? I realize now that with Rosenblatt's help, I was asking a completely different set of questions and I was no longer focusing on myself. I had stopped my incessant worrying about whether I was good enough or holy enough or perfect enough to be saved. Instead, I was asking a far more important set of questions. Was Jesus Christ good enough? Was Jesus Christ holy enough and perfect enough to save me? Did Jesus' blood, which he shed on the cross, cover all of my sins? Or just some of them? All of my Christian life, I had been told that it is all about me, my Christian walk, my obedience, my spiritual gifts, my ministry, my efforts, my moral improvement, my perfection. Rosenblatt, however, showed me scriptures that literally say the opposite— these texts teach that it is all about Jesus Christ, his obedience, his ministry, his perfection, his righteousness, and his taking my sin and suffering my punishment for me on the cross. What was I going to do with these contradictions? I was literally brought to a breaking point. I knew that one path was true and the other was a damned lie from the pit of hell. But how on earth was I supposed to figure out who was lying to me in order to resolve this contradiction? 
here's the resolution. And we're going to go a couple of minutes late, and I apologize, going into extra innings. If the purpose of God's law isn't to show me how to be perfect so that I can please God and be saved, then what is its purpose? Let me read the question again. If the purpose of God's law isn't to show me how to be perfect so that I can be so I can please God and then be saved, then what is its purpose? This was the question on which my very life and faith hung. I'd lived for years under the dry, scorching wind of law-based sermons, practical application sermons, steps to pleasing God sermons, and I nearly walked away from Christianity as a result. But Dr. Rosenblatt kept me from walking away by giving me the good news of Jesus' shed blood on the cross for my sins. But this created conflict within me. I began to believe that there was a blatant contradiction that existed between the message of the law and the message of the gospel, and I didn't know how to resolve that contradiction. The law demands my absolute, perfect obedience in order to be saved, while the gospel offers salvation as 100% gift. In short, I didn't know which story to believe, and the thought of completely trusting in the promises of Christ for my salvation was frightening, because it sounded far too good to be true. I needed a way to break the stalemate, and it wasn't, and I wasn't going to find it in my heart or in my feelings. The answer was only to be found in Scripture. I began to believe that there. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Through the advice of another Lutheran friend, I studied Paul's letters to the Galatians and Romans. While reading and laboring through these books, I came across the passages that I needed to resolve the contradictions that were pulling me in two completely different directions. The first key passage was Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, which says, we, oursel we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one, not one person, will be justified. Not one person will be justified. This passage hit home with me. It was crystal clear from these verses that no one, not even myself, would be saved by keeping the law. As I read this passage over and over again, it became clearer and clearer that my ability or inability to achieve sinless perfection was not going to be the deciding factor in my salvation, regardless of what I had been taught or even what I intuitively, intuitively felt was true. Why? Because scripture says that no one is saved by keeping the law. God's word literally blocks that route. But I still didn't understand why God gave the law if no one was going to be saved by keeping it. And this is the important thing. What's the purpose of the law? If no one's going to be saved by keeping it, then why, do, why is it even there in the first place? Romans chapter 3 verse 20 answered that question for me. It says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. A light went on in my head. I got it. I actually understood it. This passage clearly teaches that the law was given to show me my sin and show me my utter need for a Savior. This explained why every time I listened to a law-based sermon, I felt so miserable. The reason was because the law was showing me how sinful and depraved I was. The law was doing what it was supposed to do. I always felt convicted by this type of pre preaching precisely because I was always guilty of breaking God's law. 
That was exactly what I was supposed to feel. So I was beginning to see the truth and the scales were coming off my eyes. My Nazarene pastors, my school teachers, and the people I heard on the radio apparently didn't understand this. They were misapplying God's law. They believed and taught that the primary purpose of the law was to show us how to live a righteous and pleasing, God-pleasing life. That was why they were always inventing strategies, practical steps, applications, and ways by which to conquer sin. Sadly, those who wrote books were clever enough to be on Focus on the Family radio program actually believed that they were keeping God's law. They acted like they had conquered the sin in their life and were living a righteous and God-pleasing life. But if they were honest with themselves, they would have seen that they weren't. Why? Because the law demands perfect obedience. That is why the Apostle Paul tells us that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and continually do them. That's Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. I was told that the gospel is milk and that the law is meat. But the scripture says quite the opposite. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. According to, uh, according to the law, according to, excuse me, according to the scripture, the law is our guardian. It was our guardian. We're no longer under a guardian because we who are in Christ are now sons of God through faith, not by works of the law. In other words, the law is for the immature children and the gospel of Jesus Christ is for mature, for those who are mature. Once God opened my eyes through his holy word that the purpose of the law is to show me my sin and that I can't be saved by keeping it, I was finally set free from that mean and demanding guardian. I could now embrace and believe the free gift of salvation offered to me on account of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that Jesus was without sin, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. That means he lived the perfect life that the law demanded of me, and he did it for me. Jesus is the righteous one, and his perfect righteousness is offered to me for free, gratis, as a gift through faith. That is why Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For the first time in my life, I could feel and experience peace with God. I no longer viewed God as a vindictive and angry God who was anxiously awaiting the day when he could send me to hell. Instead, I saw him as a loving and compassionate and just God, who loved me so much that he died for me and for my sins. In fact, he loved me so much that he took my punishment on himself and he let me go free. 
I no longer believed that God was waiting to judge me. Instead, I believed what Scripture says about him, that he is patiently looking forward to the day that he has chosen for the two of us to meet face to face. And this day will be the day that God will receive me into his home as his son. The gospel taught me that because of Jesus Christ, all of my sins are forgiven. This includes every sin I will ever commit in my lifetime. Because of Jesus Christ, I have peace with God now. Because of Jesus Christ, I have a loving Father in heaven. Because of Jesus Christ, I have hope. Jesus Christ will one day say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, not because of any righteousness on my part, but because of his righteousness that is given to me as a gift through faith. Now, my wife and I left the Nazarene Church at the end of my first year at Christ College and never looked back. We joined a church that taught both God's law and the gospel for believers, both week after week. Although it is tempting to be bitter about my experience in the Nazarene Church, I believe that I would never have been able to understand just how sweet the gospel is if it were not for the terrifying ordeal their type of preaching had put me through. Without condemning words of the law, I would never have been able to experience the refreshing words of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's been almost 20 years since I first set foot on the campus of Christ College. As I've grown older and the whiskers in my beard have begun to turn gray, I've become like Dr. Rosenblatt. I am now the walking antithesis of the victorious Christian life. I no longer subscribe to the latest and greatest sin-conquering programs and fads. Like Rosenblatt and our Christian fathers before us, I confess that I am a poor, miserable sinner in desperate and dire need of a Savior. Daily I sin against God by my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. By the things I have done, and by even worse, by the things I've left undone. Because of these sins, I justly deserve God's punishment, both now and for eternity. But in God's word, there is another teaching. It's called the gospel. And it's truly good news. It says that for Christ's sake, all of my sins are forgiven. This other teaching tells me that Jesus' death on the cross is enough to save even a sinner like me. And it's enough even to save a sinner like you. I'll put links up to this up at fightingforthefaith.com. Thank you for listening. God bless.